You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm the director of the Practice Resource Center and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our studio in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm Jamie Moore. I'm a practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida lawyers with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So we've all heard the saying, great minds think alike, perhaps because our colleagues have said it when they collectively came up with the same decision or an exceptional idea was brainstormed in a group. But do great minds think alike or do great minds think differently? Individual differences have helped create serious advancements in science, technology, medicine, and law that would have not been possible if people had all thought alike. When an individual learns and behaves differently from what may be considered typical, this is called neurodivergence. In the past, learning and behaving differently would have been considered abnormal or a problem. However, scientists are discovering that individuals with neurodivergence have extraordinarily inventive minds, which enable them to approach situations and tasks in creative ways. In this episode, we're going to discuss how having a better understanding of neurodivergence and recognizing differences in the way individuals communicate and behave can help lawyers foster an inclusive working environment as well as positive relationships with their colleagues. And understanding neurodivergence will also help lawyers work more effectively with their clients. Joining us today to discuss neurodiversity is Haley Moss, author of the book, Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals. Haley was diagnosed with autism at the age of three. Haley's parents were told that she might not ever finish high school or earn a driver's license. Today, she is a successful lawyer, neurodiversity expert, keynote speaker, educator, and the author of four books that have helped guide neurodivergent individuals through professional and personal challenges. Haley is a top consultant in corporations and nonprofits that seek her guidance in creating diverse workplaces and a sought-after commentator on disability rights and the Americans with Disability Act. The first openly autistic lawyer in Florida, Haley's books include Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals, The Young Autistic Adult Independence Handbook, A Freshman Survival Guide for College Students with Autism, Spectrum Disorders, and Middle School, The Stuff Nobody Tells You About, A Teenage Girl with High-Functioning Autism Shares Her Experiences. Her articles have appeared in numerous outlets, including The Washington Post and The ABA Journal. Haley earned her law degree from the University of Miami School of Law with numerous honors admitted to the Florida Bar in 2019. She is the recipient of awards including the American Bar Association Solo, Small Firm, and General Practice Divisions Breaking Barriers Award. Welcome to the show, Haley. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to discussing neurodiversity with you guys. Thank you for being here. We're very excited to have you today. Just to start off, can you explain to our listeners the meaning of the term neurodiversity? It's, I know it's a term that's been out there for a while, but maybe one that a lot of people haven't heard about. And can you also tell us um, some of the disabilities and disorders that fall under the neurodiversity umbrella? Absolutely. I always like to start off by saying if this is a topic that's new to you, that's totally okay. Neurodiversity as a term did not exist until about 1998. And honestly, I hadn't heard of it until I was in college. So maybe about a little under 10 years ago, to be quite honest. Neurodiversity really just refers to the fact that all of us have different brains and the way that we process information and experience the world is different from one another. That's just a fact of human existence, kind of like how we all have different skin colors, eye colors, hair colors, just different ways of being human. That also includes our brains. I always like to explain it as sometimes if you are in a crowded room, some people can hear that pin drop, some people can't. I notice that I am usually very perceptive of certain sounds or certain things that other people may not notice. And that's just the way that my brain works on top of a bunch of other things that make my brain do the things that it does that might be different from what we consider to be typical. 
And when I think about neurodiversity, I usually like to break this down into two separate categories of folks that we have are people who are neurotypical, which is the majority of people that your brain works in expected ways. And that's the majority. I try to avoid using normal to explain neurotypical, although that's kind of the assumption, primarily because I don't know what normal is and nobody actually strives to be normal. It's a really strange thing to think about. And the other flip side of that is neurodivergence, which is that outside of this typical box that maybe your brain works differently than what's expected, and that's the minority of people. When we think about who is neurodivergent, I do not like to gatekeep too much, but anything that makes your brain act outside of the norm usually falls in this box. Primarily, we have a tendency to focus on autistic people, people with ADHD and learning disabilities. But I always like to take that a step further because those are just folks that we often view as desirable at work. And also like to include people who might have intellectual disabilities, people with mental health conditions, things also like acquired cognitive disabilities, like a traumatic brain injury or Alzheimer's or dementia, all sorts of different things that change how our brains work or make them work outside of what we're expecting. That's not an exhaustive list by any means, but that hopefully is a good place to get our discussion started. I mean, absolutely. I was just looking up um, a statistic on ADHD and and I read that 12% of lawyers have ADHD. So that's, that's a, a very large percentage. I mean, so, you know, and I wonder, is that diagnosed? Because I would, I would guess that there, you know, that it, was self-reported. Okay. So yeah, yeah. The, because I, I reading your book, I realized that, um, so many more of us are at different levels of neurodivergent than obviously that, that, that statistics would show. So the ADHD 12%, do you know, Haley, is that, do you find that that's, that you notice that more attorneys have ADHD tendencies, um, than that? I wouldn't be surprised based on that 12% number. So that's actually a lot larger than the general population. The NIH is estimating that the prevalence of current adult ADHD is actually about 4.4%. Okay. Wow. Which is higher than I expected as well. I think there's a lot of reasons why this is. And I think as far as attorneys, I think a lot of folks with ADHD primarily have a tendency to be high achievers. There's always this seeking of novelty. And I think the thing about a lot of neurodivergence that's really interesting is it isn't always properly diagnosed. And we also have this kind of belief that things like ADHD and autism in particular only affect people as children when something like autism or ADHD can very much affect your life as an adult, that they're not just childhood conditions. And when we think about who is diagnosed, who has access to services, it's a whole other story. And primarily, a lot of people fall through the cracks who are marginalized in some way. So women, non-binary and trans folks, people of color, that these are all people who fall through the cracks in childhood and might figure this out later in life. I can't tell you how many lawyers I have had the pleasure of speaking with who have told me, hey, I just found out I have ADHD. I'm in my mm-hmm. 50s. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it finally, everything makes sense. Trend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's such a really cool moment that happens in my life is that people will share this with me. And, and what happens is they're not ashamed of it. They're like, I finally understand. Absolutely. And I love in your book because I think when somebody can um, link their personal experience to something um, that others understand, you talk about um, in Harry Potter when Harry Potter discovers that he, he just feels different. He knows he's different, but then it turns out that it's because he's special. And I, I think that that's a great way to um, kind of to get the conversation started. I mean, that resonated with me. I don't know if all of our listeners are Harry Potter fans, <laughs> but, um, but why should lawyers care about neurodiversity in the practice of law? That is such a great question. I like to look at this as kind of a two-sided question. So why does it matter for us as a profession and why does it matter for our clients? As a profession, it is good for us to have neurodiversity. I know we were talking about how this difference between great minds think alike versus when they think differently. But something that I've noticed, at least in my experience, when I was in practice and other lawyers have told me that neurodivergence has made them better lawyers, essentially, is that the way they've approached problems, the questions that they're asking, or maybe that they're even able to be more empathetic to a certain situation. All of these different things help us 
if we keep coming to the same conclusions over and over, and maybe we're not trying something differently or thinking outside the box, nothing really moves in the right direction. Nothing really changes. And something I've noticed more and more, even when we get outside of just neurodiversity and go broader into the disability community, is that disability and neurodiversity tend to drive innovation that we're able to create, we're able to make things more efficient or bring things new into the world because so many of us especially spend our entire lives adapting to a culture and an existence that isn't always designed with our brains and bodies in mind. I just think that when we have neurodiversity and we have disability in the profession, it builds confidence with our clients, it builds confidence with the public. We know that people have a tendency not to trust lawyers very much. But when it does come to disability inclusion more broadly, we see the dividends from a professional standpoint more and more. I do kind of wonder sometimes how we're going to get to this point that our profession is really accepting of neurodiversity without also heavily stigmatizing it the way that it traditionally does. But I feel like that's a conversation perhaps for another day. Well, I, I think that that's a really important point because you talk about in your book about um, people that that are have been diagnosed as neurodivergent. They're trying to pass at work rather than highlighting that they have, you know, a, a different way of thinking and that it gives them uh, strengths at work. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you said people are coming up and telling you, like, I've been diagnosed with ADHD. I think that adult diagnosis has become very common. Um, I am the bar staff liaison for our mental health and wellness of Florida lawyers. So there's a real um, connection when you're talking about all the different uh, ways that uh, people think. Um, and so we always are trying to destigmatize it. And it's like uh, at annual convention, we've had vendors give out uh, fidget spinners. I think that's one way. Like I think people used to try to hide if they had those. Mm-hmm. And now people, it's just like a toy. People yeah. don't think anything of it. So why <laughs> I are- I everywhere. So don't- It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like all over any desk that I've ever had. And I cannot tell you how many clients and how many people have been happy to see that I have stress balls, tangle toys, fidget spinners, you name it. That they can absolutely. Do. I love it. Yeah, attorneys will scoop those up when that—that's the swag. But some are still trying to um, pass, as, as mm-hmm. you uh, title that. So, in your experience, why do lawyers with invisible disabilities, all different kinds, choose to remain hidden in the workplace? What's going on? Oh my gosh, we can be here all day talking about <laughs> this in particular. Not even just for lawyers, but especially our lawyers who are marginalized in some way. And I will say this as someone who did spend a long time in her life trying to pass as neurotypical. And the cascading effect that that has on your mental health and everybody around you is wild to think about too. But a lot of us don't disclose or pass because think about how heavily stigmatized mental health and so many things are in our profession. And you start learning that very quickly probably in your first year of law school, to be quite honest, when we have the talk about that you might have to disclose if you've received mental health treatment on the bar application. And that immediately dissuades people from disclosing or even receiving help if they need it. Mm -hmm. There's so many ways that this starts early, especially when we talk about lawyer mental health and wellness. And at this point, I feel very fortunate because the last two years I've served on the board of Florida Lawyers Assistance as well. And getting them to talk about neurodiversity and go beyond just a couple different mental health conditions has been really exciting. And when I think about how this starts in law school, I think about where this translates in the profession. People are afraid of perhaps at that bar stage getting called in for a hearing with FBBE. They're afraid of having conditional admission and having to submit medical records for who knows how long. And then when we think about this idea of fitness to practice, it comes in there too of what do we consider fit? Do we consider people who are neurotypical? Do we consider people who are able-bodied? Like it's really interesting to think about how much bias is baked into just that term alone. I think that also dissuades people. And think about how much pressure it takes to be an attorney sometimes. You have highly stressful situations. You have clients who are really depending on you because they're in a tough spot, either as an organization or an individual, that they're trusting you that how you feel might not be as important. And depending on your organization's culture, it might not feel safe either. I think a lot of us also have a tendency to view neurodivergence as that we're a failed version of normal, that something is inherently wrong with us, that we're broken people, because that's the message that's been told to so many of us our entire lives. Learning that's not true is huge. 
that I'm not a failed version of normal. Just my brain works differently. Sometimes I get easily distracted. Sometimes I need more support. And it's really hard to ask for that, especially when there is this assumption that something is wrong with you. I cannot tell you how many times I have told people I'm autistic in my life and people have either said, I'm so sorry, that must be so hard, or, well, you're doing so great and I can never tell. And the I can never tell thing is part of that passing thing and Um, that we make a lot of effort to appear neurotypical and kind of mask and hide these neurodivergent traits. It's kind of like having a customer service persona 24-7 where you nod and smile at the right time and you have to kind of hide how you really feel. (laughs) And if you've ever worked a service job, you probably know how exhausting that is. Yes. That you come home at the end of the day and you're like, oh my gosh. And then you just oh, well, flop on the couch yeah. and you're just dead inside. And Imagine doing that, that every day yeah. in every situation you're ever in. So when you tell someone that you're autistic, what is a better response? Let's start right there. Right. Honestly, I think it depends on my relationship with the person. When I have these conversations, I think disclosure is so individual and so situational. So I always find myself saying the way I would disclose to someone I'm working with in a professional context is very different than how I would talk about it with new friends or say if I'm going on a first date. Very different conversation Mm -hmm. to be had. But professionally or even personally, one of the best things that I tell people to do is listen and If I really don't know what to say because people disclose to me a lot, I always thank them for sharing with me because it takes a vulnerability of sorts and trust to open up about disability. Disability for so many of us is possibly our most vulnerable quality or identity that we have, especially because there is so much taboo, stigma, and kind of shame that's learned at some point. So I always start with something like that. And if I really, really don't know what to do or I don't know why this person is sharing with me, because that's the first thing I always try to figure out mentally, I always ask, how can I be supportive or how can I support you? Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like I, li- I, I really like that. It puts the ball back in your court. So then you can say, I need an accommodation. I need help with this or nothing. I just thought you should know this is why I am the way I am. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that kind of leans into my next question for you is, What advice do you give lawyers, like if they come to you and maybe they disclose this information and they're like, I haven't told my employer, like, how should I go about doing this? Do you have any advice that that you share with them? You do not have to disclose unless you want to. First and foremost, it's your story alone. Do not feel that you have to disclose unless you actually need an accommodation under the ADA, in which case you have to disclose that you are essentially a qualified individual with a disability who's entitled to a reasonable accommodation at work. Everything else, I would pretty much take it into your own hands, what you feel comfortable with. I don't like to force disclosure on anyone. I'm very open with my story. I don't care who knows at this point. It's something you'll find out about me right away anyway, even if I don't say it. But for most people, I realize that disclosure is kind of a mental gymnastics of sorts. It's a calculus almost of, oh, how's this person going to react? If I make it a big deal, they're going to make it a big deal. If I just say Mm -hmm. something in passing, they're probably not even going to pick up and care. That you do it in a way that feels comfortable to you, depending on the situation. And also think about what your goals are. Do you just want this person to know for the sake of knowing? Do you need an accommodation or help? Or do you just want to get it off your chest? Or is it a fun party trick type thing? Like I know that some people say these things as kind of fun facts every once in a while. But I think figuring out your intent is huge. And if you really don't feel comfortable giving it a name, but you still need help or support, I always like to do something I call a soft disclosure. I do this a lot and I did it a lot when I was in practice because I didn't always want to get into the details of my disability, essentially, is I would use a script like, it's really helpful when you redline and give comments so I know how to do better in the future. Is it seems Mm -hmm. really simple to say that. Or I work best when you give me clear instructions because I'm, it doesn't tell you like, I'm terrible ambiguity and I'm a people pleaser and I'm scared if I do this wrong, I'm going to get fired because anxiety. Like, no one wants to hear that, you know? But if I say I work best when you give me clear instructions, that tells you, the employer, supervisor, managing partner, whatever, okay, this is a really easy way I can help this person. And you don't know why that helps me. You just know it does. And it's a very easy thing to work through as a team. So I always look at that as kind of informal accommodations, especially if you work in a smaller firm that doesn't have the same HR capabilities or obligations under the ADA. So the ADA applies to 15 or more employees, basically. 
that's kind of my take on it is do the soft disclosure if you really don't know what to do, but you know you need something and you do not want to say it. Or you are in the middle of your diagnostic journey, as so many of us as adults often are, because it's hard to find a professional who is used to working with adults, primarily if you are marginalized in some way. I can't tell you how many women are in particular with either ADHD or in the process of getting an autism diagnosis are like, oh my gosh, this was hard because I wasn't basically a little kid bouncing off the walls. I wasn't disruptive. I wasn't this, the criteria, blah, blah, blah. So I always like to think about how we can get the support we need without having to out ourselves if we don't want to. Okay. And that's perfect because yeah. you you write in your book that firms are dealing with neurodivergence, whether they know it or not, whether they mm -hmm. want to or not. So even if your employers, no one has self-disclosed, um, you may have lawyers and non-legal staff that are struggling with untreated or mismanaged ADHD, uh, depression, anxiety. There's all kinds of mental health conditions that can affect people at work. Mm -hmm. So what can the firm do to support a neurodivergent employee. And, and so many of the things that you talk about, it sounds like are good for all employees. I, mm -hmm. I like that. But, yeah. but can you talk a little bit about what a firm can do? I love that we're talking about how this is good for everybody because that's really <laughs> my big pitch, essentially, is this idea of universal design benefits all of us. Mm -hmm. That when we do things that benefit one group unintentionally, sometimes it benefits everybody. Think about when we use closed captions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that even though you probably are not deaf or hard of hearing, I am willing to bet you either watch TV with them or you scroll through your Instagram stories with your sound off and read the captions anyway because <laughs> yeah. you don't want to disrupt everybody in public. Like you right. still use these features despite not being part of that group. So I always – that's kind of my big pitch on inclusion stuff with disability and neurodiversity as a whole is it benefits everybody. But what firms can do, I think, first and foremost, is really try to create that culture of acceptance. I know that whenever folks who are perceived as having more power, so those of you at the partner level especially, if you are open and honest with folks or you are vulnerable, it makes it so the young people and the new people are not the ones mm -hmm. who have to always do it. It is very hard being the young person or the new person and having to shoulder that burden of being the diverse individual or being the new person saying, hey, this is me. This is who I am. Am I the only one here? And shout into the void. I feel like that's something a lot of younger professionals, especially because millennials and Gen Z are a lot more open about mental health, a lot more open about yes. disability and neurodiversity than our predecessors, essentially. So I always want to think about the young people and thinking, how do we make it so they're not the ones doing all the work? <laughs> yeah. I think that's just also my age showing too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's something I, I think it's felt. a positive. Yeah, no, yeah, because it's something we I felt as a young it. lawyer. I graduated from college early. I entered our profession at 24. So I was just sitting there like, oh, I am a young person. I am the one yeah. who has to do this. <laughs> and I didn't want I don't want that for the next group of young people. And even though I'm a couple of years out of school now, and I still I still think about that conversation of what it feels like to be a true young lawyer having those conversations. But at this point, I also think when we build our culture of acceptance, it's being understanding. It's trying to learn more and realize that whatever stigmas and stereotypes we believe might not be true. It's really hard to unlearn your biases. I can't tell you how often I thought that every ADHD person that I knew, for instance, and I know we keep picking on ADHD here for some reason, <laughs> that every ADHD person is not just easily distracted or like when we think of the movies, we think of Squirrel. Like we think of people just getting right, right. like that's not everybody's experience. Just like everybody's experience isn't these people are lazy or these people that like maybe it's just really hard on their brain. So I think it's just kind of learning a little bit more that makes it better for everybody. I love that we have more CLEs on these topics even. I love that we are trying to do better. I hope that, especially for the big firms, I know something that's been happening a lot more is that the employee resource groups are being more inclusive of mental health, disability, and neurodiversity. That's been a really exciting change to see in the last couple of years. And I hope that that's stuff that continues well into the future. There's been a lot more affinity groups, even at the law school level, that there's so much change that's happening for the better. And things that I kind of sit back now and go, I wish that existed five years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, this is all great information. And like you said, we're making it easier for everyone because it's not like ADHD just 
it's a new thing that just happened in the last, you know, 10 years. This has been around for a, a very long time, including depression and anxiety. Like mm -hmm. it's just been not talked about. So I love that, you know, we're becoming aware of this. Um, and just to change gears a little bit, you did, you know, mention in your book that it is beneficial for firms to recruit um, neurodiverse staff just for what they can offer and bring. Can you just talk a little bit more about that and just you know, how that can make a better work environment for everyone. Absolutely. There was something that one of the lawyers that was kind enough to speak with me for the book said to me is that people see and seek out lawyers primarily because they're scared, that they're scared of something uh, happening to them in a good way or a bad way. They're scared because maybe they're adopting a child and they're really excited about this life change or they're starting a business or they're in trouble and they need your help because they're scared they might go to prison or something else. That people seek out legal counsel because they're scared. And that was a really interesting observation that this attorney pointed out to me. And as an attorney, your job is essentially to advocate with that person and often for them at times and also hold their hand and hopefully make them feel a little bit less scared and more empowered. And sometimes as a neurodivergent person, you might be the perfect lawyer for a specific client that maybe you understand why they're scared in ways that perhaps someone else might not, that you might be able to empathize more with their struggle. I think about the very first person I represented as an intern, actually, and worked on her case, that it was a young woman with epilepsy. And she trusted me a lot that she always asked me her questions and all that stuff. And I realized she trusted me because she thought that I was someone who understood. I don't know if I disclosed to her. I genuinely don't remember. But there was something about me that she felt safe. And that was yeah. so big to experience and realize the fact that I am who I am makes this a good fit, that this is yeah. what matters. And I think that's something that's huge on top of the fact that we might approach problems differently, that when you look at all sorts of different case studies and what's happened, especially in the tech sector, on neurodiversity at work, that you're seeing different innovation, you're seeing different problem-solving ideas and mechanisms used to help save the money, you're seeing all sorts of really cool things happening. And something else that happens as well, when I think about neurodiverse staff, I do think about how there's a lot of initiatives currently, both in the nonprofit sphere and from private companies and firms, to partner especially with communities with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and that you see more staffers that might say, have something like Down syndrome or autism, and that it makes the public feel good too. So it kind of builds that trust with them about the firm. It builds community. We're also helping people who are traditionally underemployed and unemployed have that sense of purpose, that fair wage, that genuine career, not just a job thing. I think that's one of the things that I get really hung up on when we talk about neurodiverse hiring as a whole is that it's like viewed as a checkbox for a job when we mm -hmm. are people who just want careers. So I get really excited when I see firms doing the right thing. I don't even like to say it's the right thing. Let me back up for a second. <laughs> I don't like thinking of neurodiverse hiring or having neurodiversity in your firm as the right thing to do. I like to think of it as the only thing to do because you have it whether or not you like it. And right. yes, there is this kind of view that it's the morally good thing to do. Like, of course, we're going to help those poor people with disabilities. And it's like, no, I don't want your pity. Please don't feel sorry. We are people who are just as deserving as the of the dignity of work and life and purpose as anybody else. And Absolutely. it just happens to benefit your bottom line. Yeah, and a respectful approach, not a yeah, right. not a condescending. Yeah, yeah, and I and you were kind of like, you know, just in your book talking about recruitment programs. So can you, you know, maybe just give our listeners a few um, programs that are out there that have you know talent and they can and find the talent. Absolutely. I think it depends on what you're looking for. So I know for those of us who are in government or NGOs that there's all sorts of different things purposely to bring in recent grads with disabilities primarily. So the Workforce Recruitment Program, and I believe that even the Office of Presidential Management Fellows or OPM has been doing something for grad students. And I always see that posted on the disability listservs now, which is really fascinating. But at the private level, usually what happens is a lot of private companies have neurodiversity at work, hiring initiatives and pipelines. I tend to think of places like Microsoft, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, that you can kind of go down this list of who has these programs. But my biggest complaint with a lot of these programs is they seem to be very stereotypical 
in that they mm-hmm. primarily are hiring for STEM-based roles that I don't feel like there's a lot of place for, say, attorneys. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any disability or neurodiversity hiring initiatives of any kind within the legal sphere yet. And I'm hoping that one day that I do, because I think that this is a group that often gets overlooked. It's only very recently that I've actually been witnessing that firms that are hiring diverse summer associates are including disability in that description of who could apply for some of those fellowships. That was not a thing when I was in law school. So like I've been saying, change is very gradual, but it happens quicker than we think because all of this has happened within the last five years. Pretty much not all the neurodiverse hiring. A lot of neurodiverse hiring has been around for at least a decade, it feels like, especially in tech. But even in legal, a lot has changed in just five years. I do think when it comes to neurodiverse hiring as well, there's some really great resources. If this is something you're interested in, that Disability In has a Neurodiversity at Work roundtable. They also have the Disability Equality Index. They have a really cool program called Next Gen Fellows where folks who are graduating from school or grad school or law school can get matched with mentors and things at different companies and different firms that a couple firms do take these pledges. And there's also a disability inclusion pledge from the American Bar Association's Commission on Disability Rights that it would be really cool if your firm or organization signed on to, to try to be a better ally, not just to the disability community, but also the neurodiversity community. Okay. Those are some great resources. And we're going to, these things we're talking about, we're going to put up on links. So if you're at legalfuel.com listening to the podcast, we'll put links um, that are hyperlinked to these. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit because we talked about um, whether you know it or not at the law firm, you have employees that are neurodiverse. Um, And then you have clients that are coming in that are neurodiverse. And so some of the things that you talk about that make it more pleasant uh, for everyone are things that appeal to to me. Um, Noise can be a problem, like open floor plans. Like, I mean, I've worked in places where it was an open floor plan and basically everybody was searching for a a rabbit hole to go so they could focus. But things like flexible hours or allowing remote work, these are things that I think are good for recruitment for, you know, really to hire any attorney or, or uh, non-attorney staff. Um, but what are some things that if you have, if you're working with neurodiverse clients, what let's talk about what are the typical social cues that lawyers can be looking for when they're working with a client because if the client doesn't self-disclose, um, what should the lawyer be looking for to work more effectively with that client? Oh my gosh, this is a hard question because every person is different. And every form of neurodivergence is different. So the way that I present, and maybe I would be shifting my seat, maybe I'd be extra fidgety and kind of stimming. So I realize when I'm very nervous or if I'm very excited, my hands move constantly or that I have to somehow have some sensory input. But I also realize there are people who are the complete opposite of me that are still also autistic. So thinking about that is really difficult, is that there's no one-size-fits-all approach. But some things that I know people tend to notice about me if I'm on the other side is I do not make a lot of eye contact. And that does not mean that I am lying to you. It means that I physically (laughs) Mm -hmm. struggle to look at your face dead in the eyes and process everything that you're saying. There is a much better chance that I will be looking off to the side. If you have something interesting on your keys, I will probably be staring at that or I will be doodling. All of these things do not mean that I am ignoring you or do not care. It means that's how I do a better job listening and taking in information. I think that it's very difficult to figure out a one-size-fits-all approach, but look for things that might seem out of the ordinary to you. Or I think with some forms of neurodiversity, you probably have an idea. Like if your client has an intellectual disability, there's a very good chance you're aware of it, that you Mm -hmm. probably can tell that it does not appear that they understand or perhaps they're not asking questions, or they have a support person with them, that there's so many things like that that are kind of giveaways, essentially. So I always like to presume confidence no matter who we're dealing with. And one of the easiest things that I feel attorneys can do that benefits everyone, I know we've been saying a common theme here is that these suggestions benefit everyone, is using plain language. And plain language doesn't necessarily mean that we're making it so it's not as serious. That's kind of something that gets lost. And plain language is an art, but it's really taking out that legalese, really explaining things. So I always look at it as how would we explain this very adult, very serious thing at maybe a third or fourth grade level? That's kind Mm -hmm. of 
ableist in its own calling it this like third or fourth grade level thing, but it's the best thing that I could think of because I know not every third or fourth grader has the same level of comprehension. But I always think of how can I break this down that anybody can understand it? And the way that I might do that is say we're talking about confidentiality. There was a great resource that somebody actually made on this for criminal attorneys from the Florida Bar Foundation a couple of years ago. I don't know if it's still online, but I saved it somewhere. And what this person wrote was even how to explain something like confidentiality. And they wrote, that means that I can only tell your secrets if you say I can, which is a very oversimplified version of confidentiality. We know that we have a lot more obligations than that, but it will help it make sense to somebody who perhaps does have an intellectual disability. That when we use plain language and explain things, we can help people feel confident. We can make sure that we're presuming competence, that they understand what they're facing, what's going on in their case. It's all about communication ultimately with neurodivergent clients. If someone feels overwhelmed, how do we do that? And something else that I've learned is even that we have the power to grant accommodations to our clients, even in court, that chances are your circuit has an ADA coordinator or somebody in charge of that, that you can get different accommodations on your client's behalf. Or if it's you, you could even get accommodations from the court. Some very interesting, fun things that I've had the pleasure of learning more about. And something that a friend of mine actually was telling me about, that she was in a deposition for a lawsuit. And she had her attorney's request that she gets frequent breaks because she would get so overwhelmed just answering all these questions, Mm -hmm. understandably. And that was one of the accommodations that she received, that there's so many different ways to go about this because there is no one size fits all. So what what can lawyers do to prepare neurodivergent clients to testify in court? You're talking about uh, she got more breaks. What are some other things that the, the lawyer could do ahead of time? If you can prepare the questions, I know that, or at least maybe do a couple run-throughs and we can really go through it, even just telling us what to wear. Because I think there's this understanding of look nice and someone who is very literal might think that means wearing a party dress. I know Mm -hmm. that seems kind of silly to some of you to think about, but if you're very literal-minded or there isn't enough detail, you might take, well, look nice is a very ambiguous thing that my idea of looking nice might not be business casual. It might be, okay, I'm going to throw on a nice pair of jeans. I'm going to throw on a shirt, maybe, you know, make sure I have some makeup on or whatever. And that's not what we're looking for. So I would spell out everything. I know it seems like a little bit tedious. It might be a little bit more extra effort on your part, but I promise it will take out a lot of the guesswork. And for our very literal minded folks or people who can't really read between the lines or that that extra communication is helpful, I promise it will take out a lot of concern on everybody's part. I always love giving some kind of clear instruction, even about dress code. I still ask clients now because I do a lot of speaking. I do a lot of events. I ask my event clients, hey, what's the dress code for this? Because then I have to know if I'm packing a blazer or if I can just wear a dress instead. That all of these things matter. They seem insignificant to some, but I promise they're little things that make a difference. Even just saying, This is who's going to be there. Or something that I often do is if you can, and if you're going to court, don't be afraid to go on an off day or something and say, this is where we're going or give or let them have that walkthrough or kind of experience what that feels like beforehand. Because it's a very stressful environment for so many of us anyway, but just having a feel of this is where I'm going to be. That's where the judge is going to be. This is what's happening. That can really make a difference for somebody. But just offering and trying to be creative in the solutions we come up with, I think, is important. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's like like we've been saying, this is helpful for everyone. Um, and speak, you know, since we are, you know, talking about clients in the court, um, what if you know that your client has, you know, neurodiverse um, behaviors, is that something that you recommend attorneys explain to an, a jury so they're aware of this, you know, especially if if they're exhibiting some, you know, nerv- nervousness and, you know, they feel anxiety? Do you feel like that's something that they should share or what are your thoughts on that? I think that's 100% the client's decision, what they feel comfortable with being out in. And I think that you can get something like a jury instruction relevant to that. If the neurodivergence is central to the case, I think that's a very different scenario where you absolutely want the jury to know, hey, this person has anxiety. This person 
is autistic, this person is schizophrenic, like if that's relevant to the case, you absolutely want them to know that and consider that in the jury instructions and even how that person is behaving. I do think it's not even just on juries. I do think there needs to be a lot more education for the bench because I think that when you have someone who might get really easily flustered or not realize what they're being asked or they realize these questions on direct are really kind of obvious to answer, like, can you state your name for the court? And they're like, well, don't you already know that? Because someone who is neurodivergent or very honest might say something like that. And it's not meant to disrespect the court which I've seen in a lot of different training videos and things over the years has been interpreted that way. And that's not what's going on at all. It's just this very literal, I don't understand this social convention because this is not the rules of society where it's introduce yourself or can you state your name? That, that's right. not what we and, do. I mean, and those behaviors, they, that could influence the jury too, Absolutely. you know, just so, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that's just really that's important. Why I'm a big fan of explaining things when you can, and especially if it's relevant. I think having it in the instructions might be the best place because then it's very top of mind for jurors as they're making decisions and realizing, oh, that might have helped explain. So there's different ways that you can talk about neurodiversity in the jury instructions as well. Can you tell us what uh, you, you touch on uh, some, some people that are neurodiverse, especially if they're nonverbal, they'll use a, an AAC device. What, what are those? That is alternative and augmentative communication. So a lot of us technically use AAC, though we don't call it that. Think about how we might use text to speech software, dictation, that we text a lot, that we send emails that we're not communicating with our mouths. And a lot of this is also true for folks who might be non-speakers or have limited speech for whatever reason related to neurodivergence or disability. So I always think one of the most obvious versions of AAC that you might see is you might see a person communicating with an iPad or an app that they're using that basically they touch some things and it puts out some speech. You might see letter boards. You might see things like sign language even. And all these are very valid forms of communication. I think that's something we tend to lose a lot, that we think that communication has to be verbal. I often think that personally, I am better at writing than I am at talking, although not everyone seems to agree with me on that. But I find it a lot easier to write my feelings than to talk about my feelings, especially the things in life that are hard. So think about how we each communicate too. And when we're using AAC or working with AAC users, just how we make sure to recognize that that communication is a right that they have. If you are really interested in learning more about AAC and the rights of people who use AAC as communication, there's a really cool advocacy group out there now called Communication First, and they are really on the front lines of this, and it makes me really excited. That's great. So, so much of this that we're talking about is forms of communication. Um, but the, for the attorney, um, they have to consider their communication. So you talked about use plain language, um, but you talk about other things in the book because some people that are neurodivergent describe themselves differently. They, mm -hmm. You talk about in, not insisting on first-person language or they choose to use that. Can you, can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah. So language is a really strange thing in disability circles and in neurodiversity circles is how we identify and talk about ourselves is super personal, super individualized, and people are always afraid of getting it wrong. I am going to explain really quickly kind of what person first language is versus identity first language that you might have heard me use a lot of different types of language when I'm describing people. So I personally describe myself as autistic. That is identity first language. Think about all the different identities that we have and how we describe ourselves. Maybe we describe ourselves as women. We describe ourselves as redheads. We describe ourselves as Jews or Christians or whatever identifier it is. Those are identities, right? That we're not saying I'm a person with Christianity or I'm a person with red hair or something of that nature. That's person first language is if I say that I am a woman with autism or I have autism or people with disabilities because it's putting the person and their name in front rather than using it as an identity descriptor. I use identity language when I talk about myself because my autism is not a trendy accessory that I could set down when I go to the beach and I cannot be without it. So that's just kind of my take on it. I'm a literal language sucker. So when I think of with it, I think that it's like with me, like I can carry it in my purse and it doesn't really work like that. So that's why I use identity language at this point in my life. I okay, always yeah. try to figure out how people describe themselves. I also, when I talk about disability, I do use disabled and people with disabilities 
interchangeably, primarily because there's no consensus within the community on what's preferred, especially because each community kind of has its own set of rules, it feels like. But my general advice is try to avoid the euphemisms in particular. They don't really help anybody. I know for those of you who work in estate planning, a special needs trust is an actual thing, but special needs is one of those terms, especially that really grinds my gears. My needs aren't special. They're just human. And I need a little bit more support once in a while, but it just doesn't help. I always try to call things what they are. So use the name of the diagnosis or condition if you can. And uh, and if the person talks about it, then you kind of get the cues on how they describe themselves as well. Okay. And the, the, the other theme that keeps emerging as we're discussing this is that really this is good for everyone. Um, in your book, you write that individuals with intellectual and developmental dis- disabilities are seven times more likely to be victims of domestic violence and abuse. So why is it important for lawyers to approach neurodivergent clients with a trauma-informed approach um, and in my mind, this it it has this applies to everybody. And one of the things that jumped out at me is very specific language you tell people to use. Don't say, "What's wrong with you?" Ask, "What happened to you?" Mm-hmm. I like that. I think that's so powerful. Um, but can you talk about a trauma informed approach for all of your clients? What that looks like. To me, being trauma-informed means you're leading with empathy and realizing that something probably did happen to this person. And it's probably very painful for them to relive it, especially if you are dealing with someone who, say, is a victim of domestic abuse. I have not had the honor of representing abuse victims in my career, but I feel like pretty much every neurodivergent person that I know has some form of trauma that happened to them in their lives, whether it was while they were in school whether it was abuse, whether it was constantly being told at home that you're not good enough. Everybody has some kind of issues that they're carrying alongside them because of how other people treated them or what they've done. Like we've talked about earlier today, even that there's this assumption of failed version of normal, that something is wrong, that you did something bad, that it's your fault. When we lead with something like what happened to you, especially when it comes to something that's trauma-related, that's a very different approach. It leads with empathy. It allows someone to say, this is something I've experienced. This is something that I am telling you in the only way I know how to. And sometimes people aren't going to be direct or even recognize it. There's so many reasons that abuse does happen for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. They're viewed as easy targets that they don't always understand or get the same sex education that their neurotypical peers do. There's so much that goes into this. And it's just really frustrating and it's really horrible to think about. But I do think when we lead with empathy, it does a whole lot of good for all of us. Something I do want to note on the what happened to you versus what's wrong with you. I don't like those questions when it comes to disability as a whole. So I have friends who have physical disabilities and they get asked one of those two questions all the time. And to them, they mean the exact same thing of what happened to you versus what's wrong Mm -hmm. with you. If you see a wheelchair user, they pretty much mean the same thing in that context. So I probably wouldn't ask it in that. But when we're talking about trauma or something of that nature, it's a very different ballgame than when we're dealing with physical disabilities. Definitely. And I mean, can you give us some, you know, resources or you know, training that firms can look into so they can learn more about this and, you know, train their staff, train their employees. And then, you know, that way they can foster a culture of, you know, inclusivity for, you know, people that work there and the clients that come in and and they can use all these approaches that you've explained. Oh my gosh. I wish I had a specific resource just on things that are trauma informed, but I unfortunately do not. I feel very privileged at this point in my career that I do a lot of neurodiversity trainings and CLEs and things about disability culture. It makes me really excited. It's the best job I can ever have, to be quite honest. It just makes me happy and I feel like I just get to have fun every day, so I can't complain too much. But I do think we do we need more comprehensive education, something that I've always wanted to do was think about how can we make this more approachable and accessible to everyone. I also like to put a caveat out when we talk about education, especially when it does deal with diverse groups generally, is please consult the people who are members of those groups. It's really awkward for me because I have gone to many neurodiversity trainings in my career. And I have also had neurotypical people lead them. And most of the time they tell me how to act more normal. 
which feels really, really strange. And it makes me feel right. kind of bad. But anytime that I've gone in their neurodivergent led, it's a very different experience. Is that we're saying, hey, meet us where we're at, not to make us try to assimilate more. And I think that's really powerful. That's something I also try to do in my work as well as be the, please try to meet us halfway, whatever halfway actually means. And hopefully we can understand each other and be a little bit more empathetic. There's all sorts of great resources on many different things. I know accommodations is the big one we didn't really talk too much about. That's really big. If that's something you want to know more about, there's a really great resource that's funded by the Department of Labor's Office of Disability Employment Policy. ODEP is a great resource of its own. And also askjan.org. That's the Job Accommodation Network. And they have so many different suggestions and so many great ideas and resources and articles that I am a huge fan. There's okay, no perfect list of resources, but those are just a couple that I like to get started on when we think about this at work, especially. Yeah, yeah that's no. excellent. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, and thanks, Kelly. Um, and I think it's, I just have to say, I, I really enjoyed your book. So if, if attorneys are interested, a good jumping off point would to get Great Minds Think Differently. Um, that, that will cover all of these topics and really give you a head start if you're interested in implementing some of these things. I also think you're, it's, I love uh, the, the story of your life, honestly, Haley, because attorneys speak for those who cannot. You started out as being nonverbal, and now you are an attorney speaking for those who cannot, and you are, have become an expert for people who are neurodiverse. It's very, uh, it's, I think it's quite a testament to your life. Like, you're so young, and you've already achieved so much. I'm very oh, yeah. impressed. Thank you. I feel like I, there's still so much more to do, and I feel like it's not, like, it feels like what's next is always my big question. It's kind of scary to think about. <laughs> well, and exciting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, I think we're just scratching the surface. And, and I mean, I, I do love that we're making everyone more aware and and just it's it's more accepting and it's not being hidden, you know, most most importantly. I'm excited for the culture change that we're going to see in the next couple of years, at least, hopefully. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you so much, Haley Moss, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Haley, if our listeners have questions, uh, where can they find your book and learn more about neurodiversity? My book is available through the American Bar Association. And if you want to learn more about neurodiversity, there's all sorts of truly amazing resources. If you want to learn from yours truly, you can always visit me on my website or on social media or send me an email. I always love to get to chat with all of you. And it just really fills my heart up too. So I always say that I am here as a friend, an ally, a resource, whoever you need at the moment too. Perfect. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcast and join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Center. I'm Christine Bilbrey. And I'm Jamie Moore. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bar's podcast via iTunes, Google Podcast, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.